The Boundless Pursuit Podcast is proudly sponsored by Built Wild DNA. Fuel your day on the water in a constructive and healthy way. Energy and fitness supplements designed with the outdoorsman in mind. Get your physicality in line with your mentality and maximize your time on the water. Use promo code BOUNDLESSPURSUIT for 10% off of your next order at BuiltWildDNA.com. Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com. Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. Finally, the Guyana trip is over. It is a wrap. And while I'm still unpacking, literally, I'm going to take time and try to do the experience justice and unpack it all here figuratively. This experience as a whole was just incredible, to say the least. I'm going to try to avoid rambling on and on about just how awesome it was and try to give some real insight and information to anybody who wants to do this kind of trip specifically, or really insights that could be useful for any trip, any travel trip. But the travel, the landscape, the wildlife, the people, and the fishing. So in this episode, I will try to structure it accordingly to give the full picture of what someone else who might be interested in this kind of thing could expect. So I'm going to talk about the gear that I brought, my personal preparations, things that worked, things that I wish I would have brought or done differently, just all of that. And I'll try my very best to give as much detail as I can. Now, for those who've asked and those that are wondering, I booked my trip to Guyana to fish the Essequibo River through Adventure Guyanas. Now, that's Guyanas, G-U-I-A-N-A-S. And you can see more of their information at adventureguyanas.com. And they've got a variety of offered tours around remote areas of Guyana. And they're run by this guy named Navin Rupnarain. And Navin, you can find him on Facebook. Navin and Rupnarain is R-O-O-P-N-A-R-A-I-N. And I mean, I researched my options here extensively over the course of years. And I recommend anyone who's thinking about doing a trip like this 
really not just cannonball into the decision. Understand the smoke and mirrors behind social media campaigns and advertisements on these trips. Look at the caliber of the anglers who are going on them. See, you need to be looking where the absolute diehards are going and who they suggest. So for me, I got to thank guys like Matthew Alexander, Joe Taylor, uh, Steve Ryan from here in the U.S., Eric Berger, who was actually a guest on this podcast. The common denominator with many of the really experienced international anglers uh, was high praise for Navin's operations. And so for me, I've been in correspondence with Navin for almost a decade now. And this particular tour comes in a number of packages, with the base trip being a 10-day trip. And that's the one that we selected. It's four days of traveling. And that's, you know, it's two to get there. That's your international flight and your domestic uh, once you get there and two to get home. So you what you get is six and a half days of fishing. And that half day is really just that first afternoon that you initially fly into uh, Iwakrama on the smaller bush plane and make your way to camp. And at least at the time of this recording, the price of the trip was $3,000 per person. And that covers basically everything other than your international flight. So for six and a half days of fishing, and what I believe is the greatest freshwater fishing on the planet, the price that Adventure Guyanus offers is just incredible. That's like 450 bucks a day. I and mean, you can't even find a price like that fishing a half day for basic sport fish here in the U.S., that price covers the cost of the domestic flights, like the flights on the little bush planes, the food, the lodging, everything. Any hotel stays in Georgetown, all of that falls under that $3,000 price. So really, the daily price of the fishing is even less than $450 per day. I mean, you cannot beat that. And if you listen to the last solo show that I did, you know, the one where I was preparing to leave for this trip, I took this expedition with my brother, Matt. And we departed from the States from Miami. Now, Miami has direct flights to Georgetown for a nice low price. So me being from Florida, that is a good deal. It costs less for me under a shorter period of time to fly from Miami to Georgetown than it did for my trip to Idaho earlier this year. I think it was less than 500 bucks. And we elected to fly American Airlines. But there were options with Suriname Airways at very, very low rates. But I just, I urge anyone to do their own research, make smart choices. I just saw past the low rates and envision scenarios of like cancellation or lost gear. And with so much riding on this trip, I didn't think the risks justified the low prices. So I personally went with American Airlines, who may not be the best choice either, but it's certainly better than what I was seeing out of Suriname Airways. And I selected all the plans that were available that could save me in the event of cancellations, last-minute changes, all those backup plans, the extra little fees for basically giving yourself some kind of insurance if something goes wrong. And for anybody that does a lot of traveling, I mean, jot these things down, take these notes. I want to kind of crack the code here or, or, or give you some insights uh, from my perspective. There's this app out there called Hopper, and you may know about it. You may have heard about it. It's a totally free app. Hopper. And you should be able to find it on the app store. My wife, Erin, put me onto this app. It's totally free. It's not a sponsor or anything. I don't get anything whatsoever from even saying this, but I'm trying to help you out if you have any ambitions of doing any kind of trips in the near future or in the distant future. 
But Hopper will find the best rates and the best prices on flights. It's freaking nuts. You will 100% find the best prices on flights using the app. So jot that down. Use it. That is a free tip. And I just want to give a shout out to Navin. I mean, the guy had us set up just fine. We flew into Georgetown, Guyana late on September 12th. And this was all new to me. I've never flown internationally. I've never even been out of the country at all. So my experience in navigating through customs was all weird and new. I mean, we touched down late. And the first thing you're doing is going through customs and and immigration to run the checklist of questions that they have as to like why you're here, where you're going, what's the nature of this trip. I mean, it was a long, long line. And probably the first real look at how time, efficiency, and organized flow of traffic is just not at all the same in Georgetown as it is in the U.S. I mean, the line was massive. No one was communicating. People were cutting each other left and right. There were stations to check in for visitors, stations for VIP, whatever that is, and stations for citizens. None of it seemed to matter. Everyone just bum-rushed to whatever check station they could get it. And I don't know how or why, but somehow... Matt and I just remained at the back of the line, even with the steady flow of people that were getting off the plane after us. Wait, we just stayed in the back. And we pretty much realized we better start flexing our muscles and bullying our way over and in front of people as well, or this was going to take a long, long time. And all the while, we were communicating with Navin's greeting team, his awesome wife and son, uh, mostly using WhatsApp. So that's another hint. If you're going to want to be able to like effectively communicate, especially with people that are overseas, uh, apparently WhatsApp is the way to go. But um, we were just essentially letting them know where we were, when we were, all of that. And Navin's wife met us uh, where we were to pick up our gear. And of course, that first breath of relief comes when you see your gear coming around that baggage belt and claim area. Because, I mean, the trip can't happen if your gear doesn't make it. But I guess such is the beauty of having a one-way flight. There's just the margins of error really weren't there, at least for me. But just outside the terminal, there was like this massive cluster of locals, presumably waiting on the person that they were expecting to pick up. And I can't lie. It was sort of an intimidating scene where order and routine seemed a bit lacking. Uh, It's just like a mob of drivers or people outside the terminal. But for us, uh, Navin's son, Brandon, rolled up in our chariot, a bus that was like decked out in Adventure Guyana's logo and advertisement imagery. And it was just masked by this red dust that seemed to cake everything around Guyana. So we just got our gear loaded into the van and started navigating immediately to our stay for the night in Georgetown. It's like 11.30 p.m. or almost midnight by this point, mind you. I mean, it's dark. And we're not there to sightsee or meander around at this point. It's all about getting to the hotel for the night and just laying down and preparing mentally for what was to come the next day. Now, this leg of the trip was really just a blur for me. I mean, frustrating and that I was there, but in the darkness. So there's no opportunity to like look out over the jungle from my airplane. Uh, Any sightseeing was just eaten up by the darkness of the night and the darkness of the city. So the reality of the experience like setting in was just delayed one by night and two by this character flaw of mine where there's enough anxiety that I'm almost in denial 
of the dream being realized until I'm physically standing in the jungle. Like I, I, I get to this point where I can't accept that any of this is absolute or actually happening until my feet are in the dirt. Until I'm in the jungle, this thing's not happening yet. Like I'm not here. So I was constantly worried that something, some sort of obstacle could still get in the way. And as irrational as that may seem, the trip just meant so much to me my mind wouldn't let the realness of it being at the doorstep to set in. But we got there. We got settled. Uh, you know, we got a few hours of sleep, If you, as you could probably imagine. It was a little bit of a restless night, a lot going through the mind. But we got up the next morning, and again, Brandon, uh, Navin's son, was there at the hotel to shuttle us over to Eugene F. Correa Airport. And this is when the hustle and bustle of Georgetown was on full display. Now, I don't describe the place as chaotic to be condescending at all, only to like basically establish a, like a clear difference from what I'm accustomed to. I mean, that place is freaking wild. You haven't seen crazy driving until you've been on these streets. Stop signs, lines in the road, red, yellow, and green lights, they're all just merely decorations. There's absolutely no room for timidness, or being indecisive behind the wheel in this place. I mean, cars were flying around on the wrong side of the road, cutting in, out, and around with no room to spare and reckless abandon. There's like this universal understanding of the chaos that was these streets, and it's straight up dog-eat-dog dog out there. I mean, you're traversing around donkeys pulling carts, stray dogs, kids, bicyclists, and pedestrians, weaving in and out of oncoming traffic like threading a needle. I cannot imagine a world or a scenario where local law enforcement ever gets traffic enforcement under control. I mean, it's just too far gone. But we made it. I mean, we got to the little airport, and now this is where, like, the little small bush planes that you see are. The little small planes that are transporting you into the jungle, landing on dirt airstrips. And it's, like, it's weird. Like, the, the entire progression of the trip, these places seem like these proverbial passages or levels that you had to pass, like these challenges and next step up to make it further into the trip. Like you had to pass these tests, like a game or a challenge. Anywhere that there were these series of checks and balances and you needed to be like checked in or on time, to me, just seemed like an opportunity for failure. Like what if the plane doesn't work? What if they weren't expecting us? What if there was a breakdown of some sort? either in communication or mechanics. But it's also like a passing level. And each leg or level up that we did pass through only intensified this brewing excitement where if I could just get past this or that, I'd be there. And this little airport was just so telling of the cultural differences between this place and home. It was like a microcosm of those differences. Man, like if you're the type who relies on things being absolute, detail-oriented, and on a tight schedule, you would have been sweating bullets in this place. It's like nothing seemed to be digital or in computers. Like all of our travel arrangements and agreement all felt word of mouth, and check-ins were like literally scribbled on scratch notebook paper. The customs desk seemed like they just grabbed some Joe off the street, slapped a name tag on him, and asked him to check people in. It just, it didn't feel like it would work. But again, this isn't America. And it's disrespectful to project your American expectations onto a different way of life. 
And this is like a lens that can just be foggy and only cleared with a level of humility. We're here to embrace the whole experience, to accept new customs and appreciate new systems. And so I need to make mention of this and establish that because it's a critical tone that should really be taken in this conversation. Don't ever come from one place and lay the expectations of what you know upon those that are in the area that you don't. They had a system and it worked for them. And I'm happy to report it also worked for us because we got boarded. And man, I think that at the point that we got boarded on that little tiny plane, that's when the nervous like chrysalis hatched into butterflies in my stomach because this was the final move before being in the country. I mean, we're in the country, but we're not we're like in the real parts of Guyana. So we got jam-packed into this little plane, and it was like this capsule that absolutely grabbed and held the South American heat and put it on you. I mean, we were wearing it, packed in there with about 300 pounds of dog food, personal items, stuff that the local communities would need, and our meager gear. We shared the tiny cabin with a few local families and then ultimately took to the sky. And gosh, man, I, I get excited now being able to actually talk about this, to relive it. I dreamt so long of the sight from that window. You have no idea to watch the ground below, like transition from city to small community to farmland to scarcely inhabited regions surrounded by progressively deeper tones of green. It was just indescribable. I turned my hat backwards just so I could get my face four inches closer to the window as the hints of civilization disappeared below and turned into this uniformed, deep carpet of green. It's like beyond description how incredible, just how big and how vast the jungles of the Amazon are. Like You just can't get the perspective from a screen or the page in a book or a magazine. I mean, man, looking out over the sheer vastness of that jungle canopy, areas totally masked and concealed by layers of mist, it really stimulates the mind and the curiosity as to just how much of it has really been seen or known. And you start to kind of gain this acceptance to the ideas of mythical creatures and folklore that are told to you by the locals of things that reside there like undiscovered. And I sat in my seat and I watched as many trees, creeks, and tributaries pass below me as I possibly could. And I couldn't help but smile and like just draw back into the memory bank to times as a child that I daydreamed of seeing it. This wasn't inspired in the last decade or by some other angler. This was a dream that was spawned in my early childhood with deep, impossible to describe meaningfulness. And so once we started to make that turn and we started making our descent and the canopy of the jungle started creeping closer to the landing gear, I could literally see the wheel well of the plane below my window. And at the right angle, we would see the shadow of the plane cast upon the trees and the vegetation below. I mean, it was just incredible. And it's critical to take in these life experiences through the lens of your eyeballs and not just a cell phone screen. And we ended up landing in the Fairview Amerindian Village on Iwakrama Airstrip. It's just this red dirt strip immediately adjacent to these like custom hand-built homes and schools on stilts. I mean, life here is hard. And it's simple, just the same. And stepping out onto that red dirt and being immersed in the pure atmosphere and the heat of that place was the first acceptance that I had that this trip was real. And now I'm actually here. And I mean, no sooner did the door open and we start stepping out, this crew of 
these Amerindian helpers immediately come upon us and start grabbing and loading our gear into this four by four vehicle. And so with no time to spare, we were just off into the bush. And it was just, I don't know, I'll, I'll never forget it. I mean, we're left with this like fleeting glimpse of local children playing outside at this humble schoolyard as we disappeared into this wall of green. And it was a pretty short but bumpy off-road session through the bush, and we arrived at the water's edge. And I'm sitting here just like grinning ear to ear where our boats are waiting, and immediately we got loaded up. It's, it's just this bizarre thing where, like, there's no communication. We're hardly able to talk to these guys. It's like somehow they were expecting us that I, I just we were just assuming they're the right people. <laughs> it was just like this blind trust is given to these people to take us where we're supposed to go to keep us safe, to get us, you know, to our scheduled locations. And so my gear and Matt's and this just local Amerindian who needed a lift up river all hopped into the boat. And so it was probably about an hour or so ride up the river in this like small aluminum boat outfitted with an old two-stroke 40 horse. But man, what a boat ride. I could eat up hours talking about the incredible landscapes here. These massive towering boulders shaped and weathered by time, water, and sand over millennia to be smooth and rounded giants. Like on the perimeter of the edges of the river, they stood there almost like taking a lifelike posture in and around the river system. And what was probably most impressive was just how enormous the jungle is alongside the river. I mean, it, it absolutely towers over you, vast and impenetrable. The riverbanks are just these colossal, towering walls of green. And you know there's this incredible biodiversity and life hiding within those walls. You can hear it. You can literally smell it. But the crazy thing was you could just seldom see anything. I mean, even at the jungle's base, down at the water's edge, there's this labyrinth of vines and underbrush. And so naturally constructed and firmly held, there's this pristine and undisturbed engineering to all of it, where the margins of the mighty river you're in, even in areas of like powerful and impressive rapids, has this zero erosion. And that is just a true sign of a healthy water system and really just a short distance and not but one blind corner turn. And we caught glimpse of free range wild macaws flying overhead, just completely otherworldly. I mean, these are like the red and green macaws. We saw the blue and gold macaws. To see them flying just naturally, I mean, these are the things that you see in pet stores, in captivity, at zoos, and they're just existing out here, completely and totally wild. And when we finally turned the last corner of our trek upriver, we saw our primary lodging for the trip, Paraiba Lodge. Now, Paraiba Lodge was constructed almost entirely out of materials from the forest itself, using the very wood and materials from the trees that were cleared to raise it. I mean, this is impressive craftsmanship that was the perfect blend of comfort, modern construction, familiarity, and a rustic, rugged lodging place that was just uncomfortable enough that you didn't feel guilty for laying your head there. And where the lodge sits, just geographically, is this stretch of river almost immediately between the village of Fairview or Iwakrama and Apateri to its south. It's this unique stretch of river where, like, the main river twists and turns, but, like, splinters and spiders off into numerous creeks and arms that twist and turn off alongside running parallel before ultimately tying back in. And a lot of the river, like, runs shallow and swift with these riffles and boulders that seem to hold an ambush predator in every current break. 
behind every rock in all areas of slack water adjacent to the current seams. But we get to the lodge and we just we offloaded our gear and immediately started getting rigged and situated. But it was nice because waiting for us was this prepared meal made by an awesome host of Amerindian ladies. It was here that we first met the one that kind of seemed like the mama bear of the whole operation, this lady named Cillian. And she was just this gracious and caring hostess, always checking in to make sure that we we're enjoying ourselves, our experiences and seeing what we needed. And right outside the dining area, I mean, there was goats, chickens, pigs, all of them just wandering around a little garden area with various vegetables and herbs, fruit trees. So things here are just like largely farm to table. And I could not help but just appreciate the work that goes on here. And the room layout at the lodge, is it's very simple. I mean, you've got this wood room that does have electricity. It does have lights, but no, there's no air conditioning. You've got a bed, sheets, pillows, a running sink, a shower, a toilet. I mean, really, that's pretty luxurious given that you're in the absolute middle of the Amazon jungle. The piping and the plumbing is pretty basic. There's no hot water, but all things considered, you're living nicely. Each bed that we had was outfitted with mosquito nets, although I think it's important to note, we might have seen one mosquito, and this is probably one of the most common questions that I've gotten about this trip or one of the biggest concerns everybody wants to talk about in the mosquitoes. Like, oh, aren't you worried about the mosquitoes? Did you get eaten up by mosquitoes? I mean, we might have seen one mosquito the entire trip. There's just this absolute misconception that you're going to be eaten alive by bugs out here. Now, make no mistake, there were bugs, a lot of bugs and some very big ones. These There was like these gigantic Dobson flies, praying mantis, these various beetles and large fishing spiders. And you see it all at night because the lodge is like the only source of artificial light for miles and miles and miles. And I mean, those lights draw a lot of stuff out of the jungle, but nothing that was biting. Still, the netting is enough of a barrier to kind of keep things from tickling against you at night. And it just kind of provided some peace of mind. I mean, they really did an excellent job in the construction of the lodge. I mean, you don't come all that way only to demand all the same comforts you're used to from home. Otherwise, you're really missing the whole point. So after Matt and I got in a quick meal, I mean, we boarded the first fishing boat with our captain for the entire trip. He was this Wapashana Amerindian named Rockland. And shout out to my buddy, Eric Berger, who is a previous podcast guest, as I mentioned. He suggested Rockland. And man. This guy was absolutely awesome, and I'm going to take a lot of time later to talk more specifically about him as we go on. But the main purpose of the first half day of fishing is really just an icebreaker and to gather bait. And that's the thing. I mean, you're catching your bait, and all the success you can possibly have with larger species of catfish and arapaima pretty much hinges on your success and your ability to catch your own bait. And we fished mostly in the like immediate area of the camp, uh, specifically for peacock bass and pretty much any other predator species. I really don't even remember how many we caught, but I know it didn't take long. And we were on the peacock bass almost immediately. And we were catching these yellow peacock bass that had like these big black blotches on their sides. And they're physically built more compact, short and stocky really shaped similarly to the peacock bass that we see in Florida, but it's not the same species. And I actually believe that the ones that we were catching were pretty recently identified. 
in the Essequibo Basin where we were fishing, and they're called Cicla cataracti. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. But pretty unique to be catching a relatively new identified species. But they were a pretty common catch during our stay. Now, I don't necessarily want to give like a breakdown of day by day by day sort of deal. Like, oh, day one, we did this. Day two, we did that. Because ultimately, the six full days of fishing that came after this were just this amalgamation or whirlwind of mixed species captures that was hard to even describe. I mean, this was absolute fishing purity. So rather, I think it'd be best to just describe things more broken down by the species, not by the day. Because it really seemed like anything could happen at any time, and days and times are irrelevant. And the most common species that you're targeting when you're throwing lures are the peacock bass. And locally, I loved this. Apparently, locally, they're known as Lucanani. That's just a fun one to say, Lucanani. I may even adopt that here in Florida. And I think we caught at least three variants of peacock bass. Some of them look basically identical to what we see in Florida. But the nature of the fishing is just like entirely different. I personally just really enjoyed drifting the riffles and fishing in the current breaks and the seams the most. I mean, it was just insane. You'd find these peacocks like wolf packs behind almost every rock and every current break. The closest thing I could compare them to, like here in the States, would be like some of the smallie fishing that we have in the States, drifting downstream and casting behind current breaks and rocks. Now, the gear for this kind of fishing, a lot of people been curious about that or may want to know uh, the lure casting, like for the smaller predators. Now, I only brought four total rods. I brought two medium-heavy rods and two kind of heavier boat-style spinning rods. The rods that I was using for throwing the lures it was really just like my inshore fishing gear that I use here in Florida when I'm fishing around the Everglades. I brought seven foot medium heavy inshore style fishing setups, same thing I use for snook, and 5,000 size reels with 40 pound braided mainline. Now, because of the rocks, the limbs, and the teeth that many of this river's inhabitants have, it's imperative that you bring leader material. You do not want to go straight braid out here or you're going to be losing a lot of hardware. And I was not trying to come down to Guyana to lose lures and hardware. The piranhas here can bite through almost anything. So what I did was I tied, before the trip, some of my preparation, I tied numerous, about 12-inch sections of tooth-proof wire leader. That's what it's called. You just look it up on Amazon, look it up at your local tackle store. It's called tooth-proof. And specifically, I was using like between 40-pound and 60-pound AFW tooth-proof stainless steel leader wire. The stuff performed fantastic, so jot that one down. And I attached a barrel swivel at both ends of my 12-inch leader using a haywire twist, and I attached high-strength fishing snaps to one end. Now, this would allow me to quickly interchange lures because I kind of figured my lures are going to get damaged. The hooks are going to get bent. They're just going to kind of take a beating. And it's just fun to try different things. So we were changing a lot of lures, even when I don't think we had to, because these fish are pretty much eating anything that moves. And it's important to note that, it, I mean, this is not your typical backyard fishing. This isn't high-pressure populations of fish. It is not that important to have low-visibility leaders here. This is unspoiled water and indiscriminate fish that we're talking about. They don't give a crap about visible leader in this area. But even if they did, 
these little bite-proof leaders are great. They're very thin diameter for how strong they are. So in most cases, especially in moving water, where you're really getting a lot of reactionary bites and they're just wanting to eat anything that's moving by in the current, these leaders functioned and worked fantastic. We didn't have a single leader break or cut through. They worked perfectly. Now, they would get kinked and twisted over the course of like dozens of fish, but that's normal. And we would just tie new ones or change them out. What I did do at times was use sections of like 250-pound braid as leader when I was throwing topwater lures. Only because, you know, obviously a steel leader is going to take especially the smaller scale or lighter weight topwater lures under and affect the way that they worked. But that big braid did get eaten through by piranhas a few times. And I mean, we threw a lot of lures at the peacocks. But by far, the most productive one was an X-wrap jerk bait of about four inches. I mean, they were constantly reliable in basically every color. I mean, you really don't have to complicate things in this kind of fishing. I think anybody that does ascertain that you got to do this color or that color is maybe trying to make <laughs> the fishing more than it really is. I mean, they're adding a level of skill that's just not there. I mean, everything was just flat out eating if it got in their face. What I would do is suggest that anyone bring a spare pack of trebles because the hooks are going to take a beating and you're going to need to change them out from getting dulled on the rocks, the fish's mouth, and just getting bent. And so I personally preferred like saltwater X-wraps with the stronger hooks. And four inches was plenty enough. Trust me, the biggest peacock bass that live here are maybe 15 pounds on the high end and they'll absolutely eat the four-inch X-wraps. I mean, the biggest predators that you're casting at with lures are happy to take a lure of that size. So you don't have to be slinging these giant plugs. All you're doing is eliminating the variety that you could be catching by doing that. But I mean, you're casting and you're casting, and a lot of the times you're catching different kinds of fish. They're all sharing the same space. So we would like intermittently catch different predator fish right alongside the peacock bass. And maybe the most common was the ever-abundant populations of black piranhas. Now, this is really like a novelty catch, because when you think about the Amazon, it's arguably the most recognized and iconic inhabitant of the waters. Like what the mosquitoes are to people talking about flying around outside of the water, the piranhas are the equivalent under the water. And you hear about packs of piranhas stripping an animal the size of a cow down to mere bone in a matter of minutes. And while such a tale is really not that far-fetched, the black piranhas are not really the recognized species. They're not the ones that are doing that. Generally, when you think of a ravenous pack of piranhas, you're thinking of the much smaller cousin, the red belly piranhas. Now, we did find some of those, but where we were, the black piranhas were really the ones that that were the dominant species. And black piranhas, they could be more like solitary or exist in smaller communities, but they get way bigger. And I mean, they're absolutely everywhere. We were catching these giant piranhas in a foot of water, in heavy current and rapids, and down in 50 feet of water. They're everywhere. They're in the sluggish waters. They're in the lagoons that are off the sides of the main body of the river. I mean, they're, they're, there's no space that the piranhas aren't in. 
And as a target, I mean, it's an impressive fish. It's like catching a giant bluegill, except they can get over 10 pounds, and they have a mouth like a steel bear trap. They can shear through steel leader and snap a lure completely in half. I mean, almost every lure that I threw on this trip bears the scars of piranha bites. And I mean, to me, it was a lot of fun to catch. It was a little bothersome at times, and you really sacrifice a lot of bait to the piranhas. I mean, there's there's no way around it. That's just part of the game. It's part of the equation. And even we tried keeping a piranha, chopping it up, and using its chunked carcass, but it only caught more of its little cannibal friends. I mean, for me, I couldn't help but looking at the teeth. I mean, they're just, just extraordinarily powerful in their bite. And they're very intentional with their use, purposefully and with direct intent to bite anything that you put in front of their face. I mean, we were putting sticks as thick as your thumb into their mouths, and they would easily snap them in half with one bite. A fish like this could absolutely positively take a finger. No questions asked. But beyond the piranhas, I mean, we had a few shots at a really unique species and a big target for me, and that was the arowana. It is the smaller cousin in the same family as the arapaima. And I remember seeing videos of this unique species when I was a kid. They'd be hanging out below overhanging branches and leaping out of the water, feet into the air, to eat bugs right out of the trees. And that may be part of the reason why the locals around them basically call them the monkey fish or what translates to monkey fish. And they're just one of the most absolutely coolest looking fish in the Essequibo River and in the Amazon as a whole. I mean, very like dragon-esque appearance. And you can just, you can really see the parallels between them and their larger cousin, the Arapaima. They're structured very similarly, where the entire length of their body just kind of seems like an extension of their tail or like this oar-like shape. The large eyes, large scales, very just prehistoric bony skull features. And we would generally see them like on the slack side of shallow sandbars and on the slack side of rocks, creating this like wake as they traveled just under the surface. And they would gulp at the surface almost like a rolling gar or a rolling tarpon. And you could see them swimming just under the surface and their whiskers would sometimes be sticking out of the top of the water. And so this is clearly like a very sensory-oriented species. They got these huge eyes. They have the whiskers. And so we would get their attention very quickly with a topwater lure. They seem to love small, like, plopper-style lures or the small lures that have a little propeller on them, anything that crawls along the surface like an insect that's stuck on the surface. And I managed to catch a really nice one on the first full day of fishing, and it made an immediate impact for me. The arowana is just a fantastic fighting fish, extremely powerful for their size, incredibly agile in the water with some spectacular jumps. I honestly think of all 20 species that we caught, they may have made the best impression on me out of all of them. And so there'd be times that we really needed to focus on catching certain species, catching fish for bait. But like, even on those side missions, if I spotted arowana, I was picking up a rod that was outfitted with a small two-inch whopper plopper every time. I could not pass up the opportunity to catch those things. But we also had two encounters with a really weird-looking fish out there called a bicuda. And it's similarly pronounced, and it's similar in appearance to our saltwater barracuda. Very similar in the way that they look, the way that they move. 
And the Bicuda are absolute speed demons. Like we would see them assaulting bait fish from time to time. And they're just all that they're missing are the big teeth. Now, Matt managed to hook a really nice one. I mean, this thing had to be close to four feet long. I don't know what their top end size was, but it just had the look and the size of a mature fish. And he hooked this thing and it rocketed under the boat with blinding speed. Went to the other side and then went flying into the air, tossing the hooks. The only one that we actually managed to catch was a little bitty teeny one that I caught. So I was a little disappointed we weren't able to like successfully capture a nice, big, mature one. But maybe that just gives me a reason to go back. I would have loved to have more chances at tangling with a big bicuda. And on a few occasions, we would catch these fish that look real similar to fish we see here in the U.S. We caught these Fish that looked almost identical to a uh, freshwater drum. I cannot remember what their actual name was, but I mean, they look basically identical to our freshwater drum here in the States. And Rockland, our Amerindian guide that was taking us everywhere, he was very happy to see these because apparently it's a favorite food fish. And I mean, we tossed during this trip all kinds of lures, inline spinners, deep diving crankbaits, suspending, shallow running X wraps. We were throwing things top water. I was throwing some inshore patterns like mirror lures and other twitch baits. But honestly, like I said, it really didn't seem to matter like the color or the lure that was thrown, particularly when we were fishing in the faster moving waters. I mean, if you tossed a four to five inch anything that could handle the current, it was going to get eaten. It was cool though. Like in a few areas, we did fish like calm water, and in those places, we favored casting at the bank where there was like tons of fallen timber and down trees. You'd get these intricate root systems that had like the very similar feel or similar effect as the mangroves that we have here along the coastlines of our Everglades. And in those areas, we found a lot more of the peacock bass that looked just like the ones we have here in Florida. And you would see them just launch off into these massive blitzes and start exploding on bait fish, pushing them right against the bank. And it was in these environments that you really get a better gauge at how the fish approach and look at lures because they weren't in the same hurry to strike as they are when it's simply passing them by in high current. And I found, especially the peacocks, favored lures that cross back and forth, like a walk-the-dog style lure that has to cross from the left to the right and is just passing by their face, not the linear retrieved lures. And it drove them absolutely nuts. It was almost a guaranteed bite if you got these lures in front of them. Like our inline spinners or our linear moving surface lures like a whopper plopper, like we would get bites. But man, like at one point, we started throwing spooks and they were absolutely murdering them. That was some of the funnest lure fishing we did on the entire trip. But I'm really glad that I had the foresight to bring a few bags of flukes because there are definitely some snaggy, overhanging brush along the bank that is perfect for skipping flukes. And I don't think a lot of people come to Guyana with soft plastic twitch baits like that. But now that was drawing some serious action with the peacock bass. They were going insane over them. And there were times where you'd see a half a dozen peacock bass chasing the lure down, trying to eat the lure out of one another's mouths. But the problem here, obviously, with throwing a soft plastic was the piranhas. And I mean, they made short work of the flukes. We had so many times that we brought in a fluke with a perfect semicircular cookie bite out of its side. I will say, though, like the Z-Man Elaztec style flukes that they have, 
the ones with that stretchy plastic material, they handled the bites pretty well. And they held up way better than your typical or classic Zoom flukes. I just personally prefer the swim of the old-fashioned Zoom flukes. And I can't stress this enough. Like I would suggest to anybody who's considering this trip or gear prepping, keep it simple. Do not overcomplicate. You will not need a massive assortment of lure patterns. You do not have to get crazy fancy with it. I mean, a four-inch bait fish pattern of any kind will catch the biggest peacocks. Bring extra hooks to change out, suspending twitch baits and X-wraps. The fluke thing was a lot of fun, and it was highly effective, but you're going to burn through them. It may not be worth it. That's It's up to you. I mean, they really don't weigh anything, so... If you have room in the luggage, throw you a pack in there. The small whopper ploppers, like the two to three inch, like real small whopper ploppers, those are perfect for arowanas. If you get to a place where you see an arowana kicking up a wake on the surface, I guarantee if you put a whopper plopper in front of them, they're going to bite it. Or like a small popper, but especially like the walk the dog style spook lure, that's going to generate a lot of bites from the peacocks where the water is sluggish or calm. And you're just going to have a lot more fun watching them explode on it, even if they're missing the lure. And again, do not be afraid to run wire leader on everything. You're going to need the protection. Going down there with the intent to be sporty is completely pointless. You're not going to encounter fish that you're going to have these battles of wits with, and you're going to have to work hard to figure out and dial in and pattern. They're going to eat. Just enjoy the opportunity to catch a plethora of different species. Now, I personally brought one-piece, seven-foot, inshore, medium-heavy rods. Travel rods are definitely the way to go, though. I will say that. Like, my one hiccup that I think, the one thing I would do differently, I would not have brought one-piece rods. I just personally don't own any good two-piece rods, and personally, I didn't want to buy any. But a travel rod is way better for the convenience during transportation, and you're going to have less of a risk of the TSA people or whoever tossing your gear around and it's just a pain i trust me i got a lot of weird looks and it was not fun carrying my gigantic travel tube through the airport one thing you got to do though is just be very mindful of your rods at all times it's so easy to get sidetracked by the sights and the sounds and the smells and just the ambiance of the jungle but you've got to be careful with your rods when you're not using them you're just laying them down alongside you in a small aluminum boat And there's a lot going on that can break the rods or the eyes of the rods. And I can totally see how and why people break rods so badly down there. When you hook into the big fish, it really just starts erupting into chaos. Rods are rattling back and forth. Your rod tip can slide underneath the seat of the person that's sitting in front of you. And if they make one wrong lean, one wrong move, that thing clamps down. Your rod's done. Now, my other setup was two seven-foot heavy style, ugly stick boat rods paired with my older pin spin fisher 8500s. I love those old spin fishers. I've had mine since 2010 and I'm embarrassed to say that I've never once had them serviced. I mean, my set of spin fishers have caught alligator gar, goliath grouper, white sturgeon, gulf sturgeon, sharks, rays, catfish, and all kinds of monster fish in some very harsh conditions in salt water and freshwater, and they've always held up. And so I brought one of my 8500s that was spooled with 200-pound braid and a 200-pound mono top shot. The other was with 100-pound braid and the same 200-pound mono top shot tied with an FG knot. 
These were just my catfishing rods and for the Arapaima. And I think here, guys, the key is the mono top shot. Put on at least seven feet of this stuff because you're going to encounter rocks and snags heavily in these rivers. And some of the species of catfish that we caught had the propensity to get 100, 200, even 300 pounds in extreme cases, and they possess incredible power. When a fish of that stature takes the bait and wants to get into the rocks, there's not much you're going to do about it. And I was not at all concerned if the rod and the reel had the capacity to take down even the biggest fish in the entire Amazon. I mean, I've caught sturgeon over nine foot on this gear. The problem is the snags. You have to be able to contend with the rubbing and have some form of abrasion resistance. Your line and your rigs and your gear is going to rub against rocks and tree limbs. And so what I did is I attached heavy snap swivels, like over 500 pound strength to the mono top shot so that my actual leaders could be quickly changed out. Like the same top shot stayed there, the same snap swivel. I just had a lot of different kinds of leaders pre-tied that I could easily just slap on the snap swivel and interchange. And most of my leaders were roughly about three feet long. And what I did was I used two strands of 140 pound Malin hardwire. And what I did is the hardwire was attached to heavy, like a heavy, heavy barrel swivel on one end and directly to like a 10-aught circle hook with a haywire twist, just like your typical shark rig. So I'd use a double strand of the 140 pounds. So I'm getting nearly 300 total pounds of capacity out of it. And the two strands of the hard wire are twisted together. Realistically, you're probably fine to just use one strand. But in this environment, I'm not ashamed to say I was not there to take chances or be sporty. I was there to crank these bastards in. You've got to get them away from the cavernous caves that they live in. There's no give, no time to pitter-patter around with the fish. And above the steel leaders, I put four-ounce egg sinkers on the 200-pound mono line. That seemed to hold up for me just fine in the current. And we'd really just use all kinds of fish for bait, pretty indiscriminately. The heads of peacock bass, slabs of piranha, drum, payara, these little pike cichlid-looking fish, just any small fish, we were using them for bait. And the thing is, when I mean, when you put bait down there, You have no control over what bites. And that was really what a lot of the fun was. I mean, it could be a 10-pound fish. It could be 200 pounds. I will say that fish like the coveted pariba or lau lau, as they're called, really seem to prefer the deep holes below the rapids, as did the jowl catfish. The red tails were a little more happy to be in some of the slacker water, but you'd get a lot of piranhas there. And as far as the catfish, I mean, we caught the red tails, Tiger surubim catfish, leopard catfish, flat-whiskered catfish, and we caught them early and often. But the big two is the lau lau and the jow. These are two fish that can get well over 100 pounds and possess incredible power. I mean, the pariba is the fish that the lodge is named after. And my brother Matt was really on a hot streak with the catfish the whole trip for whatever reason. I just wasn't on them as well. He managed to catch one nice lau lau that may have been around the 70-pound range or so. Could have been a little bit more. But, I mean, that thing was whooping his ass. That is clearly a fish that pulls tremendously. And that's their reputation as being among the strongest pulling freshwater fish globally. We got red tails up to 50 pounds or so. And they're a fish with tremendous character. They're loud. They're noisy. 
audibly grunting and croaking and making all these crazy noises. And it was kind of an easy one to know when you hooked them, because even in 40 feet of water, we'd hook these things and you could hear their grunts and their croaks echoing through the depths and just tremendous colors, a real unique texture to their skin as well. They're like very rough and rugged and easy to grip, not at all like the slimy catfish we have here in the U.S., but of all of them, the jow was the most elusive. I think many of these fish are more nocturnal. And we had our best luck with them in the early morning hours. I would have loved to have chased them during the night personally, but the jow just, for whatever reason, it eluded us for the entire trip until the final day before we got one. They're not the prettiest or the flashiest looking fish, but they're just absolute bulldogs. I would relate them a lot to our flatheads here in the U.S. They really favored the moving water and heavy cover. And they even had some similarities in their appearance. Just think of like a stockier, more robust flathead with like a yellow mouth. What I had a lot of fun with was the bycatch. Like when we were bait fishing for the catfish, anything can happen. And most unique was probably the payara or the vampire fish. And we realized pretty quickly that in virtually every deep hole below the current or the rapids, there were schools of payara. Some of them were really, really big and they ran thick. When we would vertically drop our baits below the boat straight down, if you'd crank the bait up just about five feet or so off the bottom, it was just like clockwork, almost automatic. You'd get some bites on bottom, but rest assured, if you're sitting there vertically dropped, if you make about five cranks up, you're going to hook into a payara. And they were just smoking every single bait repeatedly. Like if you found one, you're on all of them. But what we did find very quickly is that circle hooks just really don't work that well for them. We did catch them on circles, but I think circle hooks just don't favor fish with toothy mouths like this because the circle hook has got to follow the path of the lead line around the corner of the mouth. And I say the same thing with people that try to use circle hooks on a fish like an alligator gar. If your lead line is between two of the teeth further up the jaw, the hook's going to travel to the path of that part of the jaw. It's not going to go to the corner of the mouth. So what we did is we switched like a heavier J hooks, like heavy bait style hooks, bait holder hooks, and we started setting on them and we had way better hookup ratios. Still, this is just a species that's notoriously difficult to hook and infamous for throwing hooks, almost like a juvenile tarpon with these massive fangs. I mean, the payara has got to be one of the gnarliest, most vicious looking fish on the planet in fresh or salt water extremely intimidating looking animal, but they were definitely a favorite to catch. But now for me, one of the most absolute high priority fish was a fish called an Aymara. And I think that they have a few different regional names throughout South America, but a common name for them is wolf fish. And this is a species that can get around 40 pounds on the high end, not necessarily a massive species of fish, but just an absolute marauder. Now, those of you who know me know by now my affinity for our native bowfin. It's my fish, my absolute favorite species. Think of a wolf fish as like a giant Frankenstein version of a bowfin on steroids. They definitely have some similarities, only they have a short dorsal and much, much bigger teeth. Maybe like a similar attitude, just all violence. And both of them share the same proclivity for living tucked away and in and around heavy structure. I was very interested 
in observing the similarities the two fish might share, like behaviorally. But really, they're just, they're simply two totally different animals. We were finding the wolfish in deep water, like 20 to 30 feet deep or more around a lot of stone and rock. I think it's a kind of fish that likes to live in like rock caves, rock crevices, but they're very happy to be down very, very deep. And generally, even though I've caught bowfin in 20 feet of water, it's it's more known as a shallow water species. But we caught ours dropping baits down vertically, kind of, I think, hoping to put the baits inside or just outside those cavernous places of refuge. And for such a ferocious looking fish, their take on a bait is very subtle and hard to notice. And I mean, you take one look at these fish and you think they're just going to assault, but they were just ever so gently thumping the bait. And time and time again, we would try to engage the fish and they not hook up. It was bizarre. It was like this nearly undetectable bite. It's like they were just mouthing the bait, testing it out. And I first saw this species, the wolffish, years and years ago on Larry Dahlberg's show, The Hunt for Big Fish. But he was fishing for them totally different. He was throwing topwater plugs, and they were just absolutely murdering the lures. I mean, that's something I'd love to do. So they definitely have the propensity to show out and annihilate baits and lures. But the way that we were approaching them just really didn't give the species the opportunity to do that, I guess. But still... Being able to finally hold some of these fish, like to physically look at them, was so nostalgic. It was this sensory overload for me. And it just got crazy out there. I mean, you drop a bait six times and catch six different species. No one area was overtaken by one species. There's this perfect symmetry and balance of biodiversity in the Essequibo that is just unlike anything I've ever seen. No one species was outweighing the other. Each corner turn could and would be something new. It was just absolutely spectacular. Now, we did attempt to creep into a few of these like backwater sloughs to look for the larger wolfish, and that was really cool. I mean, we crept into these areas that were eerily similar to what I look for when I'm fishing for bowfin. I mean, it literally felt like chasing bowfin. Tight snaggy little creeks with dark black tannic water and then these random isolated deep pools exactly what i look for when i'm swamp hopping and looking for big bowfin the only problem was we worked our way into this trusted wolfish layer and then out of the thicket and like out of the brush came this posse almost mob-like group of giant river otters and it was just sensational i mean we have otters in the united states and you see our otters from time to time, but these giant Amazonian river otters are just something else altogether. They glided in with this almost challenging posture about them, clearly sizing us up, chattering and whining, but they look like these 70-pound dogs, like these massive otters. With like Their heads were like pit bulls. You just see these two clumps of muscle on top of their heads. And at least one of them, I don't know if it was like the dominant male or the dominant female. It was certainly the elder of the group. I mean, this thing looked as if it were to stand erect on its hind legs. It could just about look you eye to eye. That's an idea of how massive they were. Incredibly impressive animals. But our guide, Rockland, uh, he let us know that basically 
The presence of a posse of river otters is almost certainly indicative that that was going to mean an absence of the wolffish. He said that the otters act like pretty much actively feed on wolffish, and the mere presence would send the fish into hiding and blow the spot out for good. But it was still a fun experience, like navigating off the main river and getting into these swampy little arms off the main river. And it felt very similar to the treks that you have to take to find the Arapaima. So we're going to go there. That's kind of the elephant in the room here, that topic. That's the species. And I was thinking that the time that we spent looking for Arapaima was going to be a little more like ceremonious. But we entered the first lagoon about as unceremoniously as we could have. It was this eerie, like nonchalant tone about our guide where we just he just casually suggested that we pull in baits soaked for catfish and make our way into a nearby Arapaima lagoon. I mean, we went from fishing for catfish to him just very casually asking, do you want to go fish for Arapaima? I mean, I had no time to process it, but it immediately changed the tone of the trip and the tone of our energy. I mean, you've got to understand that each species that we caught, all of the sights and sounds of this trip were deeply important and meaningful to me. But the Arapaima really represents the core of the experience. This is the queen of the Amazon. And so we began to work our way through this gauntlet. It was this physical and proverbial passageway. I mean, it felt like the navigation of my time as an angler, of growth, navigating twists and turns and obstacles that had me ducking, climbing, and maneuvering. So representative of life, where there's this expectation of greatness on the other side. Open water and space to move, earned only at the end of a difficult path if you're just willing to go through it. And so we entered into the main body of this isolated lagoon. It's like everything I'd ever dreamed of, everything that you see on TV. After this tumultuous push through a narrow passage, and very quickly we heard and we saw the rolling of a mature Arapaima. And it, for me, it was here that I was so sure that I would lose my cool, lose self control to be paralyzed by my own nerves. But something interesting happened as we navigated quietly across the surface. There was this intensity in that boat and a level of silent, mutual understanding and focus that you could cut with a knife. I've never been so keyed in and on task behind a rod and a reel as I was in that lagoon, knowing that focus and performance had to be 100%. There was no nervous shaking, no heavy breathing. I hardly breathed at all. And finally, Rockland, our guide, indicated the presence of a nearby Arapaima before I directed my attention toward a subtle swell when I saw this faint glow of a gigantic fish gliding just below the surface. It was my first glimpse of the largest scaled freshwater fish on the planet, and it rose to gulp air almost identical to what is seen from an alligator gar. And I launched a free-lined, weightless rig with the head of a peacock bass right on it, right into its path, perfect and precise, right where it needed to be, and yet no eat. We followed this course of action for about 30 minutes, casting at rising fish to no avail. This silent search pattern, waiting on a fish to come up within reach and distance of a perfect cast. And we tried and we tried, but ultimately we decided to sit quietly along a shady spot near shore where we could have a quick lunch and just marvel at the duo of rising prehistoric fish and the colossal river turtles 
I mean, the turtles in these lagoons look like the hood of my Jeep. They're these enormous animals. And part of me would have been happy to hook one of those, honestly. But we waited with lines passively in the water. I tossed out a bait while eating. And moments later, this still buoyant braided line that was resting on the surface started slowly traveling out. At that moment, when I saw that line first start tickling the surface of the water, I don't think the reality that it might be an arapaima like at all registered. And I'm embarrassed to say that when I came tight on the fish, I initially thought it was one of those giant turtles because it didn't take off like a fish. It just slowly started moving away, slow and heavy, just like the giant turtles that we that I catch when I'm bowfin fishing. But Rockland, our phenomenal guide, this guy was always absolutely spot on. I mean, this guy could call a fish species within seconds of hook set. Like, he knew it was a fish, and he jumped right into action, getting us out and after the animal. And after a few unmistakable head shakes below the surface, I kind of came pretty quickly to the realization that I was hooked to a big, big fish. And ultimately, much like an alligator gar, I felt the line start to rise, and I knew soon I'm going to lay eyes on the fish that I've dreamt of real time. The arapaima rose, but its initial rise was just a gulp of surface air. No jump. But I can't even describe the moment of seeing this thing rise from the depths. This massive, deep body, enormous fish. It was shocking. A 200-plus pound fish, to be certain. And I'll say, my experience in fighting this monster was not one of like overwhelming power, speed, or runs. This fish just simply chose the heavy game. It dug deep, and it pushed to the bottom, and it really didn't put up the most spirited fight trying to cover water or run us into snags. It just, it just stayed low and refused to come up, challenging my strength. And that was all but for a few absolutely spectacular head shakes. Now, the arapaima would rise slowly, and then it would just burst into these incredible displays, mouth agape, gill covers flared, these erratic head shakes that sent gallons of water flying into the air and into the bottom of the boat. Still, and I do not know how, my nerves remained intact. I've never been so focused on the task when fighting a fish. I've had so many lifetime catches that had my knees trembling, and yet for whatever reason, I felt supremely dialed in and focused on the entire fight. And so Rockland, he grabbed his paddle, we're not using the motor back here. And he eyed like the one clear space of bank in this entire lagoon. And we began a slow and methodical tow session, bringing the fish in with us. And it came with an ominous willingness. It was as though it was intentionally submitting to a shallow water, no holds barred war at our hands. And she gave it to us. We got to shallow water and Rockland gave commands. I mean, the guy took over. He instructed me to hop out, and this thing started ragdolling Rockland and I like we were children. There'd be like these moments of like false submission that would lull you into a rest before she'd inexplicably explode into instantaneous bursts of speed and power. But each effort was just simply drawing more and more out of her until we finally had the fish contained. We shot a few short bursts of photos, retrieved our rig, and sent her on our way. And for me, at that point, the trip was basically done. I didn't need anything else. This was really the height, like, accomplishment for me as an angler. I mean, I tied my own custom rigs for this endeavor. 
I wanted all potential failures to rest on my shoulders. I did not want to allow the risk of like manufactured leaders or someone else's hand in whatever problems might arise because that kind of thing would keep me up. And I can own my own shortcomings. I, I can fix myself. So what I did for Arapaima, I, I opted to essentially replicate my own bowfin rigs on like a scaled up level. What I did was I used three foot sections of 500 pound Kevlar cable. It's like this thick black braided line, similar to like a bow and arrow string. To me, I thought that the supple nature of the material would prevent like detection. It's soft to the bite, but it's durable and pliable enough to twist and contort and just take form of whatever it came in contact with if the fish started jumping and thrashing. I think that a piranha could have bitten right through it, but arapaimas have small like peg-like teeth that would have to really, really saw against Kevlar string long and hard to threaten its fracture. We use the 10-aught heavyweight octopus circle hooks, just, you know, your typical catfish hooks. And while I don't think it was necessary, I still maintained a six to seven foot section of 200 pound mono attached to my braided mainline with an FG knot. That was not so much for the abrasion resistance as it was for like a handle. Because the thing is, like when you get these fish into the shallows, You've got to control the head. You've got to control the lead line. Grabbing braid barehanded with a 200-pound fish on the other end is a recipe for disaster. So grabbing the thicker mono, it was way easier when the fish was going nuts in the shallow. It wasn't hard for Rockland and I to grab the leader and just leader her back in. I mean, the, the arapaima was just incredible. I felt a lifetime of pressure lift off of my shoulders when that fish swam off. And at that point, I was really able to just relax a little more and take in all the intricacies of the experience much more clearly once the deed was done. I'll never forget having an animal like that in my arms. The prehistoric textures of its scales and its head, the raw power that you would feel in its every subtle move, knowing the capability that it had to generate this tremendous force so suddenly, it was scary. It's like holding a loaded gun that can fire off on its own. There's not a lot of experiences, I think, that we have as anglers, especially in fresh water, where you make contact or eye contact with a creature that can scare you. But immediately after that catch, we pretty much just ventured off to tackle other species. The lagoon was basically blown out by all that commotion, but still we knew that Matt, my brother, was going to need another shot at an arapaima later in the trip. So we took a solid two days off of chasing that fish just to reset, enjoy the jungle, and do more of a proactive style of lure casting before we decided to take another shot at an arapaima for Matt. So in our second effort, we decided to go somewhere totally different. This time, Rockland took us way further upriver. We loaded up the boat with a bunch of supplies to make camp, and we even brought one of the Amerindian ladies, Cillian, and we loaded down the boat with all kinds of gear that we'd need to make camp further upriver. We ended up pulling up to this huge rock surface in a smaller side section of river that was like settled on calmer water and we made camp there. We had this structure that was built out of logs with a tarp draped over. We had these handmade and fabricated tables and that's where Cillian set up supplies to cook. Matt and I were given a fold-out cot each a pillow and a sheet, and that's basically it. And I mean, at this location, you're out there, absolutely exposed to the elements, nothing to prevent any sort of animal from just walking up and making contact. All Rockland did was string up a hammock between two sticks, and he, that's all he needed. 
Thankfully, I snagged one of the mosquito nets from one of the unused rooms back at the lodge because thank God for that. I mean, even though I mentioned earlier there's just no mosquitoes, there were a ton of insects. And I just don't feel like having things crawling on my face while I'm trying to sleep. And about 100 yards back in the jungle, there was this primitive toilet built up on a wood box situated over a deep hole and outfitted with an old toilet lid. I mean, I got to give credit to its builder. They tried, but I was not about to hang my rear end over that thing. I took my headlamp and shined a light down into the hole, and it was absolutely loaded with tailless whip scorpions. And if you don't know what that is, Google it. Just envision a gigantic black spider from hell with foot-long leg span and little demonic claws. I ain't sitting on that. Just in front of the camp, we were able to catch peacock bass, small wolf fish, these little pike cichlid looking fish right at the water's edge. And I mean, we'd catch them and just walk them straight up into our little structure and immediately throw them in a skillet and eat them within minutes after catching them. But the great thing about this camp and what's so important about it is that it was closer to some of the more established Arapaima lakes. And so we headed out after a short meal into the lair of the Arapaima once more, focused on getting Matt on a fish. And the water out here was much bigger, much more open and vast than the little tiny lagoon that I had caught my fish in. And Rockland, our guide, he was just so acute, so in tune with the surface of the water. I mean, the entire trip, I had my fancy glare-reducing polarized sunglasses on looking for fish, and he just has his bare eyes squinted, and time and time again, he would point out fish, and I just, I couldn't see it. The thing, the thing was, Rockland wasn't just looking to see the fish itself. The guy could canvas the surface for a thousand different signs, the way the small bait fish moved in panic, the bubble trails, all the ripples, little tiny things that indicated something was there. And he knew better than anyone else ever could. And I mean, I'm sitting here looking and listening to the basics, the audible pops and the physical gulps and splashing of rolling arapaimas. And Rockland is over here just putting on an absolute masterclass of observation and seeing things I just couldn't see that were so much deeper than that. And so once again, it was a similar approach. We tried our hand at casting at rollers, casting at bubble trails made by fish that were mulling around on the bottom. But again, it wasn't until we sat stationary and simply put baits out that we got action. At one point, the craziest thing happened. Matt had this run and it stopped. So we just we thought his bait had been, you know, picked up by piranhas, picked up and dropped. Maybe he got stripped. So he retrieved the bait to inspect it. And a seven-foot class arapaima had followed the bait all the way in and absolutely annihilated it boat side, throwing like five gallons of black water into the air in the most horrific topwater strike I've ever seen. The fish did not stay buttoned, but that was a sight to behold. It was like seeing a 200-pound snakehead tracking and blasting a topwater lure. But it was just a short time later, we had baits out again. And Matt got a more consistent and determined carry. He came tight and the fish was hooked up. Another monster. The same battle played out though. These hard digs to the bottom. The fish played the heavy game on us. Only rising three to four times to either gulp air or to these furious head shakes. And once the fish started to settle, Rockland again manually towed the fish over to a cleared out area by paddle. Where we could contain the monster. 
And I was so happy that Matt and I were able to get some very clear and quality photos of the fish. Even a team shot with the two of us holding it before sending her back. I mean, this was really just the final chapter of the fishing. We had accomplished everything we could have wanted and more from an angling standpoint. But an adventure like this transcends fishing so much. At least it should. And I want to make one thing abundantly clear. The fishing is incredible. The fish are amazing. But this isn't the story of two supremely talented anglers conquering the world. This is simply the story of two guys who put up the cash and seized the opportunity. We are nothing without the guides. And I want to make this clear and emphatic. We are nothing. We would probably die. The guides here, the Amerindian people are the real winners. These people are heroes. They're everything. The operation doesn't exist, at least not as fruitfully in their absence. They are the absolute backbone to these operations and to the experience. And someone needs to shine a brighter light on them, not because they want it or they expect it, but they absolutely deserve it. And I'll say this, and I mean it, my biggest takeaway from the experience is not a 200-pound arapaima, like maybe I thought it would be. My takeaway is the culture, the environment. These people who live out here are a rare breed. They are supremely skilled, tough, and capable people. They do not complain. They do not expect, because they don't operate like us. Everything they do is intentional and with purpose absolute clear vision, and absolute humility at the purest level. And my piece of this needed to be intentional as well. Fishermen need to get out of their own head and understand that when you show up here, you're an ambassador of your neighborhood, your country, your family, and your people. Anyone traveling here should take time, time, and time again to show appreciation, humility, and respect. Deep respect to these people. Without them, you're nothing. You're lost. You're at the peril of certain death if you're out there without them and no direction. Remember that. Rockland didn't care one way or another if we gave back, if we said thanks, smiled, or frowned. At least he sure didn't show it. He was doing a job. He had a task. Still, I'm not out there to be carried or sit on my ass and be chauffeured. Even though they're willing to do that, they will carry you. And I wanted very deeply to be a part of the process. I wanted to be part of the machine, a contributor, a student, someone that's coachable and quiet and willing to listen and learn. If you approach this kind of trip from that angle, I feel that you can be impacted deeper than you know. I hate the idea that folks might embark on such a trip and miss that point and miss that opportunity that they might demonstrate distastefulness, a lack of appreciation, or be rude to these folks. I'm sure it happens. I don't know if he cares. He's going back home to a house he or someone he knows, probably built by hand, and he's living his life. But that was the trip. We loaded up our plane and once again, surrounded by essentials that local villages needed, our needs were secondary to the delivery route. We must have stopped at three different remote villages on dirt airstrips, to drop off supplies, laundry baskets taped together with puppies inside, feed for animals, mechanical parts, clothes, and more. Half the village population on the airstrip waiting to send or receive goods. Folks with nothing, nothing but what they need. These are hard people. And I leave there and I come back to what we have fulfilled and understanding that my room to complain 
is all the smaller. I cannot wait to travel again. What a journey. I hope other folks will seize the chance to do something similar. I mean, there just comes a point where you have to be willing to be reckless enough to just kind of go. I mean, I work in a factory. I am a normal dude. I guarantee you that if you're listening, you probably have the price of the trip and unused items and junk laying in your garage right now, or half the price. Give up your daily or weekly pack of cigarettes or whatever your Achilles heel is, energy drinks, nickel and dime your way to it. Set a hard line internally or write it down somewhere that I'm going to make this happen on this date and hold to it. I will mention this, that Rockland guy made out like a bandit. I mean, we, we treated this guy like a king. I mean, we gave the guy close to a thousand US dollars, which makes him a very rich man in Guyanese dollars. And while I could tell that that made him happy, it's pieces of paper. We gave the guy two different rod and reel combos, high end rod and reel combos, a thousand yards of a hundred pound braided line, about another 300 yards of 60 pound braided line, a whole assortment of brand new J hooks and circle hooks, a half a dozen brand new lures, multi tools, boga grips, things that he can use. Boy, he didn't show a lot of emotion this whole trip, but I could tell he liked that. That was some good stuff. It was practical. It's things that could help him live. I just, I don't know what the next trip for me will be. I'm actually more eager now than before to go out and catch bowfin here locally. I've got some target species still to check off on this continent. And I think 2024, we'll probably see a trip to Quebec for big muskies. I mean, that I think that's my big one. That's, that's the one I want. But that's maybe as far as I go. But this trip will certainly not be my last overseas. I think it's merely a new starting point for me. More big journeys to come. Thank you for listening to Boundless Pursuit. Tune in each week as we bring stories and insight from uniquely talented anglers and outdoorsmen. And if you enjoyed this show, I want to hear from you. Be sure to leave a five-star review as this is going to drive the growth and exposure of this show. And if you have feedback or guest suggestions, I would love to hear from you. And you can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com. For all other collections of media and contact information, please visit www.boundless-pursuit.com.